anyway, uh, let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these people, this place, this time, and this moment. We thank you that you have created the church. You created the local bodies of believers that populate the world. And that you're doing something through all of them. All of them that have stayed committed to you, that are walking through life uh, for your glory and your mission in this world, we pray blessings on, on them all, but we also pray that you would bless us, not that we should just soak it all up, but that we would turn around and be a blessing to others. You are the sort of background reality that's going on all the time. And I pray that you would open our, our hearts and our minds to that, that there is something greater going on despite all the mundane ins and outs of world, the world around us. All the cacophony of voices and anger and vitriol and bitterness and division and all that stuff that weighs on our shoulders so heavenly, we, or heavily, we just pray that you would pull that off and that we would get just even a small glimpse of your glory to, that would sustain us for who knows how long. Think about that woman just grabbing hold of the, just the corner of your robe. If I could just touch the corner of his robe. I pray that we would have that, that spirit about us this morning. That we just want to touch a little bit. Just to touch you, to understand you. And the power that comes from that is amazing. So we ask, Father God, that you would embody these words, embody this service. Just speak through it all. And let anything that should go away, go away. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was, con I was uh, considering just praying. <laughs> yeah. um, but in this se series, if you haven't been with us, uh, our, we've centered our thoughts on this idea that all, of, of worship as all-encompassing gratitude, right? That this love of God, we're loving God with our whole lives, and that overflows to others, right? And today, I hope, <laughs> I hope if I do my job well enough, we'll, we'll see that grateful worship sort of translates to giving community. Grateful worship translates to giving community or a giving church, right? And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about everything, giving of all of ourselves in a sense. You know, if you look at early Acts, we know that uh, all the different nations were gathered in Jerusalem in the beginning of Acts there, all the different people groups surrounding had come in um, at, for, the, for this, you know, gathering. And the Holy Spirit at that moment falls on the disciples, if you remember the story, and they start to speak in all the languages of all these different people groups. And, uh, but, you know, and, and people were amazed, but then some thought, ah, oh, these guys are drunk. So they're looking at the apostles saying they're drunk. And so Peter stands up to address the crowd, and his sermon, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, is probably his first sermon, I guess, and his greatest sermon, his best sermon. He closed his sermon by saying, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, um, both Lord and Christ. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Like, how do we get this? There was an anticipation and an excitement there. 
So he gave them instructions, and he said simply, repent, turn from your sin, turn towards God, and be baptized. In other words, be identified with Christ. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you will be filled with this seal, this this evidence of God working in your life, this Holy Spirit. And thusly, the early church was born as 3,000 people were added to their number that day, That up from 120, by the way. And that's quite a big jump. That's quite a big leap. 3,000 people needing baptism and care and shepherding and teaching and all this stuff. That's a lot of people. One pastor said that one of the greatest days of his ministry happened when he gave an invitation from the pulpit and five families came up and gave their lives to the Lord that day. Five whole families came up and, and, and accepted Christ. And as he drove home with his wife, they discussed the future and he said they mean a lot of joy, but they also mean a lot of trouble. Isn't that true? He was right. Over the years, they were, there were continuing joys with these families, but there was sort of like this, you know, nights of count, you know, counseling them. There were conflicts over false doctrine. There were great disappointments with them, stuff like that. But in Acts chapter 2, if you think about it, these new believers were 3,000 bundles of joy and 3,000 accidents waiting to happen in the same, same, <laughs> same time, right? And I'm included in that. I'm I've made my mistakes, right? And the church, as we understand, is messy joy. It's messy, messed up, crazy joy. If you really think of it, if you've been around long enough, you know that. And it requires all the time and the resources over long periods by its members. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, if you want to turn there in your Pew Bibles, I'm not going to, I don't think I put it up on the screen. Um, it says they devoted themselves, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So right out in the, the courts of the temple in front of the rest of the community. And they, <clears throat> they broke bread in their homes and they ate together. Now notice, breaking bread in their homes and eating together are two different phrases, separate for a reason, and I'll tell you that in a minute. With glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I want you to realize and think about it that the, er the early church was in a pressure cooker, right? This sort of ex external heat and pressure of the society around them served to sort of pull them together and unify them, didn't it? Um, it produced something incredible in a short amount of time. It really did. So joy and difficulty all at the same time, right? The epistles of the New Testament outline all the different joys and all the different problems that arose in, uh, the, the, in time in the local churches. We know that. 
But to be a part of that moment at that time, it must have been pretty exciting, I would think. Everyone newly in Christ, right? They're all just brand new, 3,000 of them just added, right? The resurrection that was recently behind you, you're still sitting there with the apostles' presence who were eyewitnesses. Maybe you were even an eyewitness, right? Think about that. That pressure cooker focusing, sort of enforcing souls to rely on each other to actually survive. Must have been cool. But as Christianity became normalized over time, the external heat and pressure dissipated for the early church. And possibly, just possibly, it was at that moment that we began to focus too much on all the little internal pressures of relationships. That that became a big thing. Because, you know, a a common external threat, a common enemy, so to speak, tends to make us overlook our internal, smaller difficulties with each other, doesn't it? Now, understand that the church grew like wildfire under the Roman Empire for the first four centuries um, through suffering Christ-like love. Until, you know, then Constantine comes along, the emperor of Rome at that time, and he converted to Christianity either genuinely or for political reasons since Christians had become so numerous, right? You know, maybe it was just a political move. But in 313 A.D., Christianity is legalized in the Edict of Milan, and then in 381 A.D., Christianity is made the legal sort of official religion of the Roman world, and at that moment, Christians get their first taste of political power over others. Maybe it prompted them to think, well, Constantine's on our side. Now we're the legal religion, now we can enforce or legislate Christianity. We can make people become Christians. And less than one year later, 382 A.D., the first non-Christian is put to death for heresy. So how quickly worldly notions of political power diminish worshipful, loving attitudes and behaviors which formerly cared for their neighbors and drew them into faith in Christ. Big difference. Centuries of bloodshed follow. We have the heretics are burned. We have unbelievers that are murdered. We have the Inquisition, the Crusades, all kinds of like black marks on our history that we're not very proud of. And those things are complicated. We get it. But God's kingdom, married with that of the world, always corrupts. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, listen to that statement because it's true. The kingdom of the world is always about coercion or threat of force. Whereas the kingdom of God is about repentance and grace and mercy and self-sacrificial love. Loving God, loving neighbors, as we've been talking about for a few weeks. Giving of ourselves and our resources out of gratitude for what's been given to us or been done for us in Christ. You know, history has formed us and not, sometimes not always well. We know that. It, as postmodern individualistic Americans, our culture hasn't always promoted uh, communal care and giving and self-sacrificial love, right? Even when it says it is. Instead of looking for Scripture as our model, 
you know, looking to the, to, to the Bible for our model of how to be the church, churches have allowed all that stuff to influence them. Therefore, the local, local church, you know, it's not, it's not unheard of that, that they just, it, you know, uh, Christians now think of the local church as just add-on. It's not central to our lives. You go to church on Sunday, but then you have your whole life outside of that. We've not been under pressure and threatened with loss of life or family or livelihood due to our allegiance in Christ. That's just not been the case. So we don't really feel the need to rely on each other. We're not pushed together, you know, in, in, in reliance on, on God, you know, in this calling of God that we have on our lives together as a body. Now that may be changing, <laughs> right? Soon we may be forced to care for each other at greater levels and in, you know, very practical ways as false crutches get taken away, as our political power dissipates. Sensing the need for Christian community more as we stand with Jesus to actually face the loss of jobs and opportunities and relationships or even worse. One friend of mine who used to come to 6-8, they moved to New York a lawyer said after uh, sort of talking to me this week, he was sharing his Christian convictions on certain issues, and he said, what I just said to you would get me fired at work. True. <laughs> it's true. But the, here's the thing. What looks bad could be actually for the good. We said that a few weeks ago in a sermon, right? What looks bad could be for the good. What looks bad may be the opportunity for spiritual growth in us. To become that transformative community that God actually intends us to be. Indicative of Jesus' words in Acts 20 verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Because notice as a result of, of being in Christ, as, as a result of Jesus, the early church devoted themselves to four simple things, right? The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four simple things. And practicing those four together, what happened? They had everything in common. They sold property. They sold possessions to give to anybody that had need at that moment. They, they continued to meet together constantly, openly in the temple courts before the community. They practiced communion together, which is breaking of bread. They ate together in their homes and, and with sincere hearts. And they praised God constantly. And they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Great picture. And couple that with the actual gospel message, the actual words of what Christ has done. That is attractive and powerful and convicting in a community as evidenced by 3,000 people giving their lives to Christ in one day as a result of one sermon. Wish my sermons had that, that effect, right? And despite pressure and persecution, the result was that daily they were having numbers added to their to their their uh, their to themselves to to the, to the faith daily even though it could mean their life their livelihood or the loss of relationships to identify with Christ and his church people were coming to Christ think about how much you have to love God how much you want to worship the Lord to worship him openly out there in the courts identifying yourself with Christ and your church family in that kind of environment Think about it. 
before COVID and all the difficulties of politics and cultural shifts and worldview shifts and people moving away, we were transitioning to a larger church. Fast forward, this is a very new church with new people. Amen. Amen to that. Look around you. Actually do this. Look around. Look around at these people. Look at them all. Look at these people. Do you know what they do, where they live, what's going on in their lives? Do you know their name? Do you introduce yourself? Do they know you? This is your church. Past, future, you can't do anything about. The, the, what matters is right now. These people, this place, this moment, this church. Amen. Amen. Do you know that Moses and Nikki just had their fourth child and we've been doing a, a meal train for them? Do you know... Do you know that Kat's father just got diagnosed with esophageal cancer and they need a prayer? Do you know that due to COVID, the Christies haven't been able to see their family in Australia and may not be able to for a while? Do you know that Tomoko is a single mom trying to get by? Do you know the names of the kids in this church? I know that's, it's kind of hard to keep all those kids straight. Do you know that we have somebody here that played professional baseball and started with the Phillies in the 1980s? Ah, now you're thinking, right? Now you want to know. They're not here today, so don't look around. They're in the Poconos for vacation. Do you know that some people in this church are very new to America? Sorry, IBK. Like IBK, who's from Nigeria, and he's a friend. Do you know that College students come to our church, and they need input and prayer as they, man, they're facing a lot as they go through life, right? Do you know that some of us do prison ministry with nine guys, a number of which are murderers, and we love it. We love it. And there are great conversations, and the gospel is going out with those guys. And we would love for you to pray for that. Here's the question. Have you logged in enough hours with people for quality moments and memories? Because quality time only comes with quantity time, by the way. Sunday morning, showing up here every Sunday morning. There's 52 Sunday mornings in a year. I'm sorry. It's, this may make you feel guilty. If, if, if you think about 52 Sundays out of the year, if you're under 40, you got to think about what you're doing. If you're to 46 or 48 Sundays out of the year that you're in this room, amen, you are top of the heap. Jeez. You need to be here. You do. So have you logged those hours? Have you, do you come to community group? We've had a great start with our community group. It's wonderful. Have you had meals? Have you had, asked people over to dinner? Have you had parties in your homes? Have you broke bread together? Have you ate together in your homes? Have you spent time in difficulty with people in this church to the, see the sweetness and joy develop later? I'm very passionate about this, aren't I? <laughs> very, 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 because it's so important. Wednesday night community group is actually a great place to practice this devotion to teaching and fellowship and breaking bread and prayer. We haven't broke bread in the sense of doing communion together there yet, but maybe we will. 
but we have eaten together. We, we eat dinner every, every Wednesday night together. It's a place to eat and talk and pray and get to know each other and hear needs from others and then actually pray for them or actually practically solve them some way. You see, for the mature Christian, secondary small disagreements don't divide us. They don't. They don't. We don't just leave for little things. Wherever we go, there we are bringing the same set of problems to a different set of people with the same set of problems. But still, sometimes we convince ourselves that the grass is always greener on the other side of the septic tank. Right? Great book from the 1970s, by the way. So here's the thing. Be committed, committed to, to the messy joy. Be committed to the messy joy of the local church that God has planted you in to grow. Amen. Make quantity time priority with these people to gain quality time with them. And that will be a witness. We've been talking for three weeks about grateful worship. The way that we live reveals what, what we value most, that God calls us to be sort of, uh, of, of worship of our entire being. What we do in life reflects our worship of Christ or not, that kind of thing. And knowing who we are in Christ means a growing gratitude and self-realization of our individual influence in this local church. What we've been given in Christ drives us to give more of our time, more of our talent, and more of our treasure. According to the scriptures, let me make it clear, church is of greatest priority in your life. I'm not just saying that because I'm paid to be a pastor. I would, not, I would believe that even if I wasn't pastoring a church. Because it's been said that the local church is the hope of the world, and I believe that. Not, not that I believe that we, as individual human beings, are some great, but God working through the church with his message is the hope of the world, yet only as its members act like the church, when they give of themselves out of grateful communal worship together. No one orders our schedules for us. We're all adults. Nobody can make us desire these things. We can only teach and provide, right? Provide opportunity. But an awareness of what Jesus has done for us can birth a desire to give and receive in community, which is the greatest witness. It's greater than your personal witness. So what do you have here? You have this profound opportunity to build a powerful witness to the outside community all around us and how you interact and give of yourself here. That's a powerful opportunity. So let me ask you to consider what Jesus has done for you. That's where you start. What has Jesus done for you? Which leads to the question, what do we do for him by way of our selfless giving to others in our church for the sake of his glory? Amen. Amen. And where's the answer? The answer's right here in Acts chapter 2. That's where it is. Filled, now this is important, filled with the Holy Spirit, which we should be if we're in Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we give our, of ourselves in four areas. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. 
grateful worshipers building a giving community. And actually, in the original language, it says continually devoting. Not just they devoted themselves, but continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The teaching which governs all other characteristics of the church that, in which the Spirit reigns, right? You know, we marvel at professional basketball players tired and, you know, they're like halfway or three-quarters of the way through a game. I don't even know. Is it periods? What is it? Like, what? Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> I don't even know. I know in football it's like a halftime. That's all about all I know. But, um, but you know, they, they get up. They, maybe they're injured. Maybe they're really tired. But they've, been, they've just been fouled or whatever you call it. And they get up and they, they throw that, that free throw. They get up the free throw line and they throw that thing. And they hardly ever miss. They, they actually have apparently over an 80% success rate at landing that shot. And they make it look so easy because of two things. One is they have an innate ability, a talent... And then they have a continual devotion to their sport. So they have a talent and they practice, right? Our innate ability, our innate power, our innate talent in a sense is the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But our continual devotion to the teaching of Scripture makes for a great witness. It's Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know the great words, dwell in you richly. The backbone of Christian life is teaching. The back, let me say that twice, the backbone of Christian life is teaching. John Calvin preached two sermons every Sunday, and then he preached every weekday on alternating weeks. So that's 10 different sermons every two weeks. That's a lot. Don't make me do that. <laughs> I, I'm not John Calvin. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may by, by it, you may grow up in your salvation. And we've all seen babies, a newborn baby, craving their mother's milk, right? We should crave milk from our mother, the church. The church is a good thing. But that's hard to do in a non-reading, experience-oriented, frantically busy culture where people who think occasional attendance is good enough. I'm not reprimanding. Believe me. I, I, there's danger in preaching these kinds of sermons. Everybody feels guilty and they walk out. I'm, I want this to be a passionate uh, encouragement to go higher. We want to be a Bible-believing church in order to be a Bible-living church. So... We show up, we put in the hours, we engage with the teaching, we carry, we read, we mark up our Bibles since it is actually is the Word of God. That's what it is. And fellowship is where this teaching comes to life, isn't it? it to which they also devoted themselves continually, right? A kind of fellowship, by the way, that didn't exist before Pentecost. There's something to do with the Holy Spirit and all this stuff of coming, people coming into Christ that has a difference about it, right? The Greek word koinonia for fellowship isn't even found in the Gospels. This is the first occurrence in the New Testament denoting this intense 
commonality between people. Something's really going on. Every time the word's used in the New Testament, it denotes some kind of sharing with others or sharing in something with a group of people very intensely. The early church foundation was this sense of giving of themselves beyond sentimental feelings of oneness. Koinonia is practical, descriptive of unity of thought and action towards each other. It's deep love, active love. True fellowship costs something. It costs something. And if it doesn't, then we've not really experienced the joy which can come from giving of ourselves in community. And sometimes it's going to be really hard and you're going to be really tired and you're going to be really pissed off, if I can say that in the sermon. You're going to be mad at people sometimes. That's okay. But it costs something. True fellowship demands that we give of ourselves intentionally to others in a myriad of ways, like in time, talent, and treasure across the board. And that it's all centered on our shared values and shared beliefs arising from the teaching about Jesus. As 1 John 1, 3 states, it says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So they saw and they heard what, you know, what Jesus did, right? So that, you, so that you also may have fellowship or koinonia with us. And our fellowship or our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It all centers around Jesus. And then worship is further expressed in this breaking of bread and this, this life of prayer, isn't it? In verse 46, as I said, the phrase broke bread and ate together are separate for a purpose, right? Because after eating, after eating a meal together, which is very important, by the way, getting together and hanging out and eating together, they'd take this, the remaining bread and wine, and then they would remember Christ's death. They would do the Lord's table. They would do communion together. So they continually were devoting themselves to keeping Christ and his atonement, his atoning work, right just constantly before them, always remembering it, daily lifting each other up in solemn sort of joyous contemplation of that. And through that, hearts of people were moved to worshipful prayer, leading the church to relate to the world in the way that God intended it to relate, which is evangelism. Something happened as a result of this community doing these things. Someone once said, where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the Word, that is teaching. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to each other, that is koinonia or fellowship. Where the Spirit reigns, the believers relate to God in worship, breaking of bread, prayer. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the Word through evangelism. You know, they were filled with awe at that moment. And it's not just because of the miraculous that was done, done around them, but it was more akin to what Isaiah 6, 5 says when he said, Woe to me, right? Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. A grateful sense of awe in what Christ has done, a reaction from the fallen and the frail before a mighty, holy God of love and grace which prompted them to meet with each other in the temple courts and in their homes, practicing all these things continually, very human and very full of joy and something very divine going on. The church, filled with the Holy Spirit, devoted to teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer and worship, always results in evangelism. 
always. You know, Paul himself, if you look at his life, he, he worked hard his whole life for the sake of the gospel in other people's lives. In Acts chapter 20, 18 through 20, 21, he says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So he had that pressure from the outside. Verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. This is a lot of work. This is a lot of time. There's a lot of hours, right? Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks right, that you must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. There's the evangelism, right? Paul's example is one of commitment to giving his life and giving his resources to the church for the sake of the gospel in the lives of others. As Paul speaks to a group of leaders in, uh, uh, from churches in Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, he reminds them that they are to live as shepherds to provide for the needs of those that they've been entrusted with. Paul stresses this commitment you know, by citing his own model in verses 31 to 35. And as he closes those thoughts, he reminds them of the words of Jesus. In verse 35, he, he says, In everything I did, I showed you by, thy, by this kind kind of hard work, hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's life is a viable example of grateful worship in giving to Jesus by giving to his church, giving of himself to his church. He received from Jesus so he gives back by giving himself to others. Jesus is Paul's foundation. Jesus is Paul's desire. And he owned what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Listen to that. What you do for them, you did for me. Acts 4 uh, 32 through 37 gives a little bit more detail of the early church that I want to touch on. And it says, it be begins, all the believers were, all, uh, were one in heart and mind. Now I want to stop there for a minute because that is such an important point, is it? especially these days. They were people of spirit and they were people of truth. Spirit and truth. True worshipers, as we heard Jesus tell the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the kind that God wants. Unity of conviction of, of thought and conviction of heart. And when you have those two things in a community of people, you know, it, 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 with others, you naturally care for them and you want to give back to them. If not, if you don't really have that, then you're just arguing and playing the victim. And it's tiring. And you won't last that long. Being of one heart and mind is the American church's hardest issue right now. It is the foundational hardest issue. Because here's the point. Unity is only achieved or centered on shared value and belief. Let me say that twice. Unity is only sh uh, centered on shared value and belief. You cannot have unity otherwise. It's an impossibility. 
And right now there are competing voices out there which want to steal your joy, deconstruct your conviction, inject doubt into your faith, and dismantle your trust that you have in the Scriptures, in the Bible, right, and in your church, and in its members, and in its leadership. Disagreements, remember, on minor issues is fine. Who cares? But the majors have long since been established. We've argued for this stuff over centuries, not two weeks. If you don't know where you stand on a large issue, explore the the Bible. Explore the Bible in the context of good, strong Christian fellowship being devoted to the teaching of sound leadership over the centuries. Be devoted to that. Issues such as who Christ is, what the church is, what is salvation, what is justification in Christ, what is sanctification in Christ, what is human sexuality, what is marriage, what is salvation, what is repentance, all these things because the teaching over the centuries has not changed and it will not change. It will not change for these things since the Bible is God's inspired word and it is not progressive in nature. Sorry if I'm screaming. (laughs) It is not progressive. It's not changing. We're not adding to it. We're not detracting from it. It's all that we need right there. Amen. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. Do you believe that? You have to. If you don't, Go sleep in on Sundays. I'm not kicking you out, but I am saying it's not worth your while if you're not going to believe that. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen to that. But here's the problem. Many want their answers in sound bites. One-sentence sound bites on very complicated issues. Human sexuality, what's your position? You want one sentence. It's what you want. I can't give you that. And when we don't get them, we run to those who will tickle our ears to tell us what we already want to hear. The truth is we need to slow bake in the church. Immersed in teaching and fellowship, and breaking of bread, and prayer to fully understand some of these more complicated issues, which takes both humility and trust. It takes trust. Can't do it out without trust. As Francis Chan once said, when I disagree with someone in God's word, something in God's word, I just assume that I'm wrong. Good principle. Amen, Francis. Sorry if I'm so crazy. I didn't expect to be this passionate about this. But if you don't know your theology on an issue, align yourself with a Bible-believing church and accept what they say until you understand it, even if it takes decades. Because it's not changing. Trust your church. Trust the leadership that God has put in place to lead and to guide. Not that we are perfect. And there's always danger in saying that (laughs) when you are the leader. It's not that we're perfect, but we are beholden to something greater than ourselves. Or if you don't do that, you might end up like Paul, to whom Jesus said in Acts 26, 14, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, was he persecuting Jesus? No. 
Not directly. He was killing Christians, right? But when you're killing Christians, you're persecuting Jesus. When you're hurting people, you're persecuting Jesus, right? Why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It means to fight against me, right? To go the other direction. So like Paul, when we stop kicking back, which everybody is such in the habit of doing these days, right? then we begin to trust the teaching of Jesus in the local church, through the local church. We develop a heart to give of ourselves and our resources, realizing that we have been kicking against God and not the pastor and not some other guy in the church or some other lady in the church. Nobody. We're kicking against God the whole time. Worshipful givings outlined as we continue Acts 4, verses 32 through 37, I think it's starting in verse 33, it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. This is just like uh, verse, uh, the, the, the other verses. But they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy among, uh, persons among them. Isn't that what everybody wants anyway? Here's how you achieve it. The spirit-filled local church in gratitude of what they received in Christ give of themselves in joyous and practical ways. Time, talent, treasure, which takes intentionality. I am not ashamed to say that we should be giving a lot. Believers gathering in and, and, and living in communion with God, producing a giving culture, a a culture that is just embracing, a natural byproduct of living as grateful, worshipful, redeemed people. As the early church gathered consistently, continually, and with the intention of honoring God through their relationships, we are told what happened, that every day people were being added to their, their numbers. Amen to that. Worship leads to a giving community, which leads to change in your community. By committing to giving out of the gratitude of what's been given, we keep God on the throne of our hearts where he should be at all times while living out his love with others around us. So here's your homework. Some people blame me for not being practical. And applicable. I'm like, I'm a philosopher. I don't need application steps. You know, I'm not a teacher. No, I'm just kidding. They're right. Here's your your homework. Self-evaluate. And don't let this be a guilt exercise. Self-evaluate. And step if you need to. Step up your game. Right? If someone, ask yourself, Go home this week, and if someone looked at your life and they added up the time and the talent and the treasure that you pour back out in giving to your church community, would it reveal a grateful, worshipful heart of giving in ministry with others? Would it reveal that about you? Or would it reveal that it's just sort of an add-on? That's a big question. That's, again, no guilt, only moving forward, right? That's, what, that's why we do these things. And if you, if, it, if, if you can say that, yes, it reveals that, then great. 
great. That's wonderful. But if not, then maybe you need to reevaluate how you spend your time and your resources because we want to be a Bible-believing church leading to be a Bible-living church of worshipful souls that are witnessing to our world. That's what we want. And this is a great time to do this sermon because we had this long meeting on Friday uh, with me and Kathleen, and my wife was supposed to be there, but she couldn't, and, and uh, Natalie and Donna, about all the different things that we have to, to face in the coming months and, and the needs that we have in our church, and there are needs, and maybe you can start to fill those. You know, we need greeters on Sunday morning, which is a very important job. We need uh, people to do uh, announcements, which Sam just did for us, and we need people to do counting of of the money together, with the, we always had two people, so we're on, on the straight up and, you know, whatever, honest. We need people to do slides back there. We need people to do tech and sound stuff. We really need a sound person pretty bad. Um, we need worship. If you're, if you're a worship person and you're, you just have been scared and you haven't stepped up yet, talk to Natalie. Get up here, man. Um, we need kids' teachers. You know, I, I don't know if you know, but my wife almost... You know, three Sundays out of the month is called in to teach because somebody has to cancel or they can't make it or, or whatever. Um, prayer, the prayer team needs people. Uh, hospitality back there, just, just coming in during the week maybe or coming in early on a Sunday morning and just setting up things, lighting candles and, you know, getting all that good stuff from jo- Joseph's place, delicious chocolate, and bringing it over and doing things like that. There's a lot of things that you can do to help. And actually, it puts you in the room around people to talk and to get to know them more. And we become more of the church. Let me pray. Father, we, we pray against that spirit. I, you know, I, I, I'm feeling a little bit like I know myself. And I know I can come off and uh, intense and, and that might create you know, guilt in so many, and I, that's not what I want at all. I'm so excited about what you're doing here. So excited, Father God. I'm just, it, you know, it's like, it's, like the, it's like something's turned and we're, we're moving forward and coming out of COVID, and we ask that, Father, you would build us, just sort of put all these blocks into place. Shape us, form us, and mold us into what you want us to be as a church community here. Let us be devoted to the teaching. Let us be devoted to fellowship. Let us be devoted to breaking bread together. Let us be devoted to prayer together. And let us be devoted to seeing that evangelize the surrounding community together. Let us be devoted to each other in our lives and walking through things and praying for each other and giving to each other if we need to. We love you so much. We don't want to play house here. We want this to actually be the kingdom of God. We want, we want to establish your house here in this community and have it transform the lives of people around us. We pray for those great days where people come to you in droves as a result of this church, this local church and its witness. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go for it. <laughs>